Who are they? How did they get here and where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today we are joined in studio, if you will, by Johnson University, Tennessee graduates, Jesse and Carrie Pryor. Jesse and Carrie, welcome to the Sojournal Podcast. Thanks for having us. To get started with, would you mind just giving us a general introduction of who you are for folks who don't know you? Um, my name is Carrie Pryor. Um, I was Carrie Peck. Uh, my parents are Richard and Tamara Peck. We grew up in Indiana, so a little small town uh, called Martinsville. Obviously attended Johnson. I've got four beautiful children at home, two of whom are now in university, and two will be returning with us to the field shortly. And yeah, happy to be here. I'm Jesse Pryor. I am an MK missionary kid. My parents are John and Benita Pryor. I was born in Papua New Guinea a month after my parents went to the field for the first time. So I grew up in Papua New Guinea or PNG uh, until I was 18. We did some furloughs here and there, but um, the way I came to Johnson was my grandfather was also the academic dean here for 25 years, Dr. Blevins. So I had a lot of ties with the school. So I also have four children. That's kind of a coincidence. (laughs) And two are obviously in college and one of them going here to Johnson this year. You were actually born in PNG? Yeah, um, I was born in Port Moresby General Hospital a month, which you're not, you couldn't even fly today if you were in your third trimester. And the crazy thing about it is our, our last son is adopted and he's also born in Port Moresby General Hospital. And our other three are not, so uh, we share the common hospital, so that's pretty cool. How did that adoption come up? Six weeks after we got married, we were told we'd never have kids of our own. Carrie was diagnosed with a brain tumor, but that never stopped her more than me thinking about adopting. Then we go to Papua New Guinea. We've obviously had three natural kids of our own, biologically ours, but the desire to adopt never went away. But if you've ever tried to adopt in the United States, you realize that if you live on a foreign field, it's almost virtually impossible to adopt kids. And then we found out that you could adopt in Papua New Guinea, even if you were not from Papua New Guinea. In fact, it was easier to adopt in Papua New Guinea than it is here in the United States. And we're done. We have a little boy who's three weeks old. I told Carrie, Judah's At the time, he was 12, five years from freedom. Like, And she's like, but this boy needs a home. Uh, Five years from freedom. Uh, But Jesse, no one else is going to adopt it. Five years from freedom. (laughs) Well, we adopted Israel. You know, God opened the door, and we love him just, he's no different from the other other three. I mean, uh, if there was ever a doubt of if he, if, being a prior is nature or nurture. It's nurture. He's exactly <laughs> like me. <laughs> I'm sorry, Carrie. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. know. 
he's a fun little guy, man. He's he, we're blessed to have him, and I feel like you know we got to choose him, and he chose us. Mm. So it's really cool. Well, thank you for that. Now, folks know sort of who you are, but we're going to get to know you a little bit more. So, you guys were both raised in Christian homes. Yes. Uh, my parents were Bible translators, so I obviously grew up in a household where uh, Dad would talk about, you know, Scripture that they were translating, and I was very blessed to have godly parents who uh, reinforced it. Sometimes uh, I got beat a lot. Let's just say that um, I deserved everything I got and got it on a very frequent basis, but I'm, and I'm thankful for that because... I probably wouldn't be where I am now if they'd taken it easy on me. So, uh, yeah, with mom and dad, they just lived it out, living examples themselves, and they wanted us to grow up hearing about the Bible stories. Um, I always remember coming back uh, in the eighth grade, they did some kind of uh, test for the kids in our Sunday school class, and I was the only one that got 100% right. Quiz, and they're like, how in the world does an 8th grader know who Nehemiah's uh, nemesis Sanballat was? And I was just like, well, how do you not know? Like this, <laughs> um, So it wasn't like uh, they went out of their way, it's just they lived their faith very well. So Carrie, what about you? Yeah, um, I did grow up in a very strong Christian family. Some of my earliest memories, my mom playing piano and organ at the church. My dad was an elder. When I was very young, they used to lead the high school. And I remember the high school youth group being a part of that, being the tag-along mascot that got to go different places with the high schoolers. Though my dad had a construction-type vocation, I remember very early on all the Bible stories sitting at the feet of parents and grandparents both, who coincidentally are Johnson grads themselves, and as well as my grandmother, who was my Sunday school, first Sunday school teacher. So I remember very much faith has always been part of our life. The way that they have ministered and talked and prayed and sang, music has been a huge part of the way that their faith was expressed on a daily basis, having that music and Christian gospel background always going in the background um, plays through my memory. Anytime I hear Southern Gospel, I can remember Sunday mornings waking up to different different records that were being played um, to wake us up and get us out rolling for church. What church were you a part of growing up in Indiana? In I was a part of Liberty Christian Church um, mm-hmm. from my earliest times. My grandfather was the minister there. Um, and then towards my later years in high school, my uncle was also the minister there for a while, both of which were Johnson grads. And um, it's always been neat. It's been a very much a family thing there at Liberty. I've been super blessed for all the extended Christian family that has been there and still feeds into my life to this day while we're on the mission field. It's just been a great Christian family there at Liberty. It sounds like you have a great home church. You keep talking about your family that's been here. So uh, explore that. I mean, you all come from a pedigree of Johnson graduates. Who in your past has come to Johnson? My grandfather, Dr. Blevins, he graduated from Johnson. I think my granddad was here for at least 30 plus years. Uh, 25 of them were academic dean. I ended up having him in class after he was academic dean. I had him for Old Testament poetry and ethics. My dad graduated from Johnson. I graduated from Johnson. Uh, My son Elijah is fourth generation on both sides. She can do hers back that far as well. I have my uncle David Pryor, who was a missionary in PNG, same time as my dad. He came here. My uncle Mark came here for one year. My brother's been here for one year. My cousin John, David's son, who is the senior minister out at Morrison Hill in Kingston, he's a graduate of here. My cousin Matt came here for one year. It kind of was like a thing in our family that all people in our family came to Johnson at least one year before they went somewhere else. 
my grandma and grandpa prior came and were dorm mom and dads in Johnson Hall after they retired. So our ties go back a long way with Johnson, not just because we went here, but the year that I was in eighth grade and then the year I was a freshman, my parents were the resident missionaries on campus. When I came my freshman year, I just walked up from my grandparents' house and moved in my three boxes, and that was about it. (laughs) So Carrie, what's your family history? Um, I've got Johnson on both sides of the family. Um, My mom and dad both were graduates. My dad has a twin brother, Fred, who also went to school at the same time, Fred Peck. Um, And then granddad on my mom's side. My mom's dad is Norman Abel, and her brothers, Danny and Kevin, also attended here. Yeah, we've kind of got a mix on both sides that are very much Johnson dedicated and recommended the school highly to us. So did your mom come here? My mom did. Graduated with a music degree. Okay. That's crazy. So Elijah, your son, is fourth generation... To, to come to Johnson from both sides. That's, just, that's really unique. But it's cool to hear that kind of story, that heritage. <laughs> Consequently, when our daughter was deciding where to come, that was the very reason she chose not to come to Johnson because she was like, I don't want to go to class. And said, so you're Jesse Pryor's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> it can work for you yeah, or it against you. It can work for you or against you. You might want to claim your mother, not your dad. <laughs> Before you came to Johnson, somehow or another, faith had to become your own. Can you identify a time in your life where you latched on to this God thing as legitimately yours and not just the faith of your family? I think for me, it was probably between freshman and sophomore year in high school. Um, I remember there was a group that came, it's actually called AIM, Adventures and Missions. Mm -hmm. And they were in southern Indiana and they came and presented um, some mission opportunities that they had had. And it I was one of those that attended church camp every year. And my favorite people at church camp were generally the missionary kids. So I enjoyed learning more about where they were from. I was just fascinated by the fact that they grew up somewhere else and got to see things that I had never seen. So when the opportunity presented itself with Adventures and Missions to do a mission trip of my own, I very much wanted to go. I'd been studying Spanish in high school. I thought, this is this is it. This is for me. And the, the cheapest, the most affordable trip was, of course, to Mexico. So that's where I chose to set my sights. Got a job at a Waffle House being a hostess and made some money that summer and saved up and did go on that mission trip. And I remember very much at that time thinking, this is what I need to do. This mm-hmm. is This is how I need to live. This is what I need to do for the Lord. I think mine was more... Like, I believed in God, but I don't think it really became real to me. I was baptized when I was 16. I saw a lot of other kids getting baptized, you know, at camps or stuff like that. And I always just thought that it was always like you're doing that on a spiritual high. Or I'm a pessimist by nature, so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it because it's real to me, not because of someone's telling me, oh, you need to get saved or mm-hmm. anything like that. I, I always felt like it was a very personal decision. It wasn't that I didn't believe that Jesus was real and that he died for my sins, whatever. It just it didn't feel like it was something I needed to do anything about. Then as you get older, you start to mature and you're thinking, well, maybe I need to do something about this. So that was when the decision, and it's been a lifelong journey. So um, I'm still a work in progress. Uh, I haven't got everything figured out yet. (laughs) (laughs) When did the decision come for you guys individually to come to Johnson? Mine was made up for me. When your granddad is on the staff here (laughs) and um, your parents are telling you you're going to go to Johnson for a year. Plus, it's a good environment. At the time, it was a good environment to come to. 
my main criteria was, do they have a soccer team for guys? If they do, then we're all good. And so uh, I came to Johnson my freshman year. I met Carrie my freshman year. And then I didn't want to go anywhere else um, (laughs) because she was here. So uh, that was how I ended up at Johnson, just because family ties. It's just what you did. It's just what you did. And I didn't question that. And I came back uh, for the summer in 1997 and worked on the grounds crew because my parents wanted me to have an experience of what it's like to get up and go to a job. Mm. And they wanted me to get my driver's license in America because you could take your driver's license in America and go to P&G and they would just accept it and you can get it. But in P&G, you couldn't get your driver's license till you were 18. Mm. So I came here, learned to drive on the wrong side of the road, <laughs> and then go back to a and g hand them my American driver's license and drive on the left side of the road, which is the correct side. <laughs> <laughs> So, Carrie, what about you? When did you decide to come to Johnson? Our stories are a little similar in the fact that it was very much expected um, that that we would go to Johnson, and it was very much confirmed by the bottom line. Um, mm-hmm. So I had, I had entertained some thoughts of different universities, and I checked some of them out. But what it came down to for me when I looked at it, not only was that a, a wise financial decision, but it was also a place I felt like I needed to be in order to reinforce the faith that I had been taught. Mm-hmm. I think in my latter years in high school, I probably wasn't making the best decisions for myself. I felt like the parameters that were set up at Johnson were conducive to me staying the type of person I wanted to become. Mm. And that would encourage me in my faith and continue reinforcing the values that my parents had already set there for me um, that I was prone to wander from. That's really interesting. You know, I think so often you hear folks choose to avoid Johnson very specifically because they they want to learn what life is about outside of the confines of what parents expect or whatever. And you made that decision knowing this was what you wanted to become. Yes, I think I I felt like if I had the freedom to choose, I would not choose wisely. Seeing what my parents became from Johnson and from their faith, I, that's what I wanted, but how I was choosing to go about it wasn't necessarily the right road. Um, and so I felt like if I continued down the road that I would choose for myself, I might not be happy with where I ended up. Also, for she mentioned the bottom line, um, that's one of the reasons why Elijah is here too, because <laughs> you guys offer a great scholarship to missionary kids. Coming to Johnson for me for that one year was great, and I knew I was coming. I didn't even think about the finances. I mean, it wasn't even a question of, where. well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Johnson. We always go to Johnson for the first year. But now, since Elijah's here, and I'm on the other end of the spectrum, for me, um, the missionary scholarship was a big deal. And I feel like, as long as that stays in place, there more of my kids might come here. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good possibility. And then, as far as the rules go for Carrie, said, I think if you reinstated the holy circle like it used to be, where you couldn't wear long pants, that mm. might that might help. Couldn't wear or must wear. I think it's yeah. a must wear. Yeah. Yeah. You had to wear long pants. You had to wear long pants inside the holy <laughs> no, circle. Right. If you walked around it seven times, you might as well be engaged, especially if you walked around <laughs> with a girl. <laughs> you mentioned, Jesse, that you absolutely loved soccer. So soccer is a big deal in P&G? Uh, yeah. I grew up playing Even in it. the village? Oh, yeah. That's one of the reasons why soccer is such a, a universal sport. For third world countries, um, all you need is a ball. You don't even have to have goals to kick at. I mean, I grew up playing what we called one mark, which is basically a stick. Mm. And you had two sticks that you shoved in the ground, and you had, had to hit the stick with the ball in order for it to be a goal. You know, 
that was all I wanted to do. I suffered through school so that I could go outside. And as soon as I could go outside, I was playing soccer most of the time. <laughs> um, so uh, You came with the intent of not only getting the education, but playing soccer. Yeah. Did Carrie, did you have any athletic inclinations or anything like that? No, I played volleyball and stuff in high school. I did play, I think, for a year here. Um, but no, that was not my... I was more of a choir girl. So yeah, I did join the choir first off and, and enjoyed that and traveled with Declaration for a year. That was a good time. But um, working through the elementary education program, I found that I had fewer and fewer free hours mm-hmm. um, for those kind of pursuits. And that was fine by me. I think I had gone past my ambitions on both of those. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't really have anything else that I was pursuing other than um, teaching, which was what I had hoped to be able to use uh, in the mission field. What years did you guys come in as freshmen? 95. Then how did you meet? The way we met was I wrecked my truck. So mom and dad had gotten this old Datsun pickup from a friend of a friend. And I hadn't realized that if you let go of the steering wheel, it would go off to the right. So I had gone out to get some fries at McDonald's with my friends and we were on our way back. And I let go of the steering wheel for a second and reached down. And we went off the road, down the embankment, hit a concrete culvert, went up their driveway, went airborne and hit the tree head on. My friend didn't even have his seatbelt on. Mm. We left round cracks in the, in the windshield where our heads hit and we both walked away no blood no bruises and then like three minutes after we did that and we were just sitting there grandpa drives by in his car sees the truck stops gets back he tells me get in the car you're driving us back to the campus and i was like no i don't want to drive right now i said son get in the car and drive because if you don't drive now you may not ever want to drive again so he made me drive back to campus and car was totaled and my parents found a car up in indiana and since our parents my dad was a senior when her dad was a freshman and they put out the uh the student directory he was looking for who lived closest to where that car was and so he called my future father-in-law and said hey dick would you mind if your daughter drove a car down for my son uh after thanksgiving and she drove the car down, and they wanted to say thank you, so they had her over for uh, supper. They had me go, too. And after she left, and I dropped her off and came back to do my laundry or whatever at the house, he's like, you know, you ought to think about dating a girl like that. And I was like, <laughs> she's part of the cool crowd. She hangs out. You know, that's how we met. I mean, I knew who she was, but I never... Like, I didn't just go out of my way. So when I bought a car, I also got my future wife in the deal. We had no idea. <laughs> so, Carrie, how do you feel about that being called uh, a member of the cool crowd? I mean, uh, definitely was not true. <laughs> definitely was not true. I don't know if I had met you at all at that point. I don't think I did. I actually think I looked up his picture because I didn't know who he was. But my cousin did. She was telling me, yeah, he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. My roommate my freshman year was Philemon Sanders, mm-hmm. who was also an MK. Mark Hoff was a senior who I'd met when I came back in 97 and worked on grounds. So the th- three of us MKs would hang out together. We still had enough in common that we didn't really feel like we were a part of the American society. as So birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. So I'm glad you mentioned that as an MK, a third culture kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that adjustment like for you? coming from PNG to the United States? It, 
looking back on it, like I wouldn't change it for the world. Uh, it's part of who I am. But there were just major holes, like how I dealt with people that I didn't even know existed. Mm. And people would look at me like, why are you doing that? Or why are you asking that? Like, how do you not know? Because, you know, I didn't look that much different from Mm. a quote-unquote normal American. And I sound like an American. People always said, I wish you had an accent that wasn't American so people would know you're a foreigner. But you're not you're not right. And I said, <laughs> I said, trust me, no one has ever considered telling me you're normal. Like, no, that's just not me. But having other people here who kind of had the same background of growing up outside of the U.S. and just seeing the world through a different lens, a different perspective, was a big deal for me. Uh, there were other guys here that knew what I was going through. And, you know, Mark being an upperclassman, he'd been through it. He was kind of, you know, he was on his last year, but just having guys around that just like, listen, it's okay. It was good to have that. It's, I'm hoping that Elijah has the same situation here. And I think he does because we've met a couple of the people that he's hanging out with now. And they're, they're also from a outside of the U.S. flavor. It's just, it's, it's interesting how that works out. Okay, so you guys met over the transaction of a car. Yep. <laughs> uh, was that in your freshman year? Freshman year. Freshman year. Okay. We were married our junior year. Okay. Still had the car. Did you? <laughs> you <didn't laughs> yeah. So between your freshman and junior year, I mean, were you all dating that whole time? Yep. Or when did you finally pick up the relationship officially? January, I think. Yeah, somewhere around Still there. freshman Jim's year. Freshman yeah. year, January, okay. I think so. What other experiences do you remember from your time on campus? To be honest, I actually enjoyed hanging out with his friends. Um, mm. <laughs> I enjoyed hanging out with the international crowd. Um, not only his friends, but also in the dorm. I remember Michelle Calderon was one of the girls that um, I hang out with a lot in the earlier years that we were here. There was a goodly number of people here that were very, very interested in missions through Harvesters. We met one of those special groups that we met The in. Dungans had been to Mexico. The Dungans had been in Mexico. He was one of my Spanish teachers here and he, just an inspirational family. Um, I enjoyed doing um, some of the TESOL classes that I had with um, Dr. Bridge is just learning more about that and it made me it helped me understand where Jesse was coming from too these phonetic things that were foreign to me and linguistic things that he grew up in that was very much a part of his upbringing Um, just all that went into Bible translation and just I don't know anything about it but just the dusting that I got from those different classes of what that takes to become a Bible translator and all of the detail that goes into that work it was fascinating for me I just I love to hear that Andy Reese was here. Mm-hmm. Um, he grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, Javier yeah. was here. He Ruth. was a Puerto yeah, Rican. <laughs> Ruth from Portugal. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of us for, I mean, for the percentage, there was a lot of a lot that of the international flavor. that had the, grown up abroad. Yeah, I mean, Kelly just, and, it, was, it was wonderful meeting them and hearing all these different stories from worlds I couldn't imagine. Carrie, even though you came for LED originally, mm-hmm. but you had a missions heart. That was my whole, that was my whole goal. Um, I think after going to Mexico a couple of times in high school, my thought process was that I would learn to become a teacher so that I could teach on the border and um, work on those kids that could go back and forth. that could either get a job here or there and make a difference for their families minister to those through teaching English overseas, especially I was thinking along the Mexican border, use my Spanish to speak with them and and hopefully make that a little, that transition easier for them into English and improving their education so that they could improve not only their life, but also their understanding of cultures back and forth. I thought that education would be the key to get into 
many different cultures. Anyone that you would pick, almost everyone has a, a door open through education. Jesse, did you come straight into missions? No, I actually started out on the telecommunications program. Because when I left Papua New Guinea, I told my parents and told myself I would never go into the mission field, ever. That was my plan. So I had no desire to be back on the mission field at all. So when did the Lord convince you otherwise? Um, It started with a conversation I had with my dad. Uh, Dad was on furlough about 2001. No, it had been 2002. Dad said, hey, I've got this dream uh, that in Samban, which is the village where we worked, that we could have an, uh, what he called a center where people, you know, you'd have doctor and uh, we'd have a clinic where people could come get medical help. But then we'd also have a place where people could come and do education and literacy stuff because we're translating the Bible and no one can read it. He said, I need somebody who has experience with the language, experience with the culture, knows how hard it's going to be and be able to stick it out. And I laughed and I said, where are you going to find somebody like that? <laughs> and he said, well, I can think of two people and your brother doesn't have any construction experience. And I said, Dad, you're crazy. I'm never going back there. I have no desire to go back there. And six months later, we were on our first exploratory trip. Because I wrote down a list and I said, God, if you want me to go, this is what it's going to take. And we literally, within a span of two or three months, just ticked every box on that list. In 2004, we left as a family to go to PNG. Hmm. Carrie, what was that journey like for you? It was daunting a bit. We had visited right before we got married the year, summer before we got married. One of the big things that he wanted me to do was to see this culture that had formed him into who he was and basically have a good reason to explain away some of the idiosyncrasies (laughs) that were in his character, but just to get to know a little bit more about his life and his childhood and where he grew up. And I loved every minute of it. It was beautiful. We had talked a bit about maybe serving in town, using some of his gifts in construction to do some service work in town. That did not appeal to me at all. In town is all barbed wire and fences and I very much like caged animals in town. I I, I can't handle the feeling of restriction there. But the village was beautiful and open and and safe, natural. You could walk around as much as you wanted. You could visit in people's homes. Um, You could feel free to come and go at Women Will and things were safe. You can leave things out on your front porch and not have to worry about anything. So I loved the village. So the thought of coming back, I was really excited about getting back into the village, a little bit leery of my town time. The language, I think, scared me more than anything. He decided that it would be best to do full immersion. Mm. So for the first six months, um, no English. We did a six-month stint out in the village, no going back into town, whatever. And so when we went back into town, her language skills were better than most of the people that had been serving there for five, ten years. Wow. I remember literally crying with frustration at about nine o'clock, just saying, I can't, I can't do this. You're going to have to let me speak English for a while. My brain hurts. (laughs) Everything just hurts. I think the best language learning was hanging out with the kids, um, where my pride would get in the way of me experimenting with new words with adults and being laughed at. With the children, I felt like it was a game and it was fun and they could teach me things and it was much less confrontational when I made a mistake and they could laugh and I don't care. You're just some kid. What do you <laughs> What do you care? So, um, but that was fun. I did a lot of gardening that first six months, just saying, tell me again, what is this? What are we doing? And they would talk through, I'm digging the ground. I am making a mountain. I am planting a yam. I like just over and over telling me what they were doing while they were doing it until I could get it right. 
Hmm. So, when you contrast the village versus in town, what kind of distance is that? Well, I can tell you what it is in miles, but it doesn't tell you travel time. We're 120 miles from the nearest town, but it takes, depending on the water level, uh, it takes a two and a half to sometimes up to eight hour boat ride uh, to get to where the road is. And then for 12 years, we didn't have a vehicle there. We rode public uh, big trucks just sitting in the back, and those took a while. It, But now... Uh, now that we have our own vehicle, we can make the trip from the village to town in just a little under eight hours to do 120 miles. In some ways, it's very much like when I was a kid. Uh, it's still remote. Uh, I worked in conjunction with one of the local cell phone companies, and we've actually got a cell phone tower now in the village. Oh my. And we can make phone calls and texts from in the village now. So while we are remote as far as travel time, we're a text message or phone call, which is just crazy to think about considering when mom and dad were there for 21 years, it was high-frequency radio, mm-hmm. you know. We do have an airstrip, but airstrip's only used for medical evacuations. Uh, it's gotten so expensive to fly, we don't fly anymore. Hmm. We've done countless flights for medical evacuations. It's been over eight years since I've landed or taken off in, in Sambon. Hmm. I didn't hear either one of you mention a faculty member or spiritual experience. For me here, my time at Johnson, I had some really knowledgeable professors. One of my favorite classes, I know it might seem like nepotism, was I hated my granddad for Old Testament poetry. It was awful. But his ethics class, I remember more about my ethics class than a lot of my other classes. I really enjoyed Dr. Mattingly for the missions classes that he taught. I even had President Smith for Roman and Greek history. I had Dr. Fife for History Restoration Movement, one of the last years he taught. But for me, the time uh, here on campus, as far as interacting with faculty and staff, was my time in work-study. You spend three hours a week with a professor. If you do work-study, I did eight to 16 hours of work-study, depending on uh, a week, depending on you know how much you worked work study. So guys like Phil Zook and Ron Williams and Ben Lutz Jr., just the way they lived their lives as Christian men and how they did their job. And while it may not seem like a whole lot, I can guarantee you that my time here at Johnson, I learned just as much about living life and my contact with Phil Zook and Ron Williams and Ben Jr. as I did any time in class. Mm. That was huge for me because I I had no other experience outside of my time on work study before I started into the workplace up in Indiana. That was a, you know, that was the only time I'd had to learn. Hmm. I didn't have an opportunity like Carrie to work during high school. There wasn't anywhere to work other than, you know, allowance and making your bed every day. I really respected guys like Bob Martin, you know, that were just lived out their lives. I know everyone says Dr. Reese was great. It's not that I don't think he wasn't a good professor, but he was my dad's roommate in college. He was just my dad's friend. Dr. Eubanks, because I remember that being the first friendly face that I saw coming into the cafeteria, and he was standing there handing out trays, and he called me by name, knew exactly who I was, asked me about my granddad, 
asked me about my mom and daddy, asked me about my uncles, knew the entire lineage of every one of my family that had ever been, and sincerely wanted to know, actually pulled me aside and wanted to know how they how they were, how their ministries were going, how their families were doing. And I remember feeling like if at ever any time I wanted to talk to him, he was someone who knew me. He knew my family. He was a family friend. He was just an extension, someone that I could go to if I needed to go to him. Mm-hmm. And I remember being so impressed with his wife and the way she memorized. And I'm still impressed. She still blows me away mm-hmm. with the way that she memorizes and the, the store of knowledge that she had. And that was such an inspiration to me. It was inspirational. Still mm-hmm. is inspirational to mm-hmm. me. You mentioned Bob. My favorite professor, though, was his wife, Mary Lou. And I believe it was the first time she'd ever taught children's literature. I think she kind of got pulled in on that one that year. But I don't know that anyone could have ever done a better job. Um, I read more children's books that, that term and absolutely saw them from a new perspective through her eyes, the way that she challenged us to look beyond just the words and the simple drawings and things, to look for the meaning that they conveyed, and to be purposeful in selecting what texts that we use with our children. Um, It's something that I continue to do as a homeschool mom and as a teacher today, looking beyond just the cute little stories for what is this teaching? What moral is this providing? How can we parallel this with the scripture and what the scripture teaches? Does this complement or is this actually not complementary and maybe something we need to choose not to use? And her very evident love of children and love of books. In fact, she is one that um, just two years ago when we were home on furlough brought me a whole box of books. And she said, because I know you'll use them. And she is absolutely right. Of course, I use them. What happened between leaving Johnson and going to PNG? I worked heating and air conditioning for four years, basically. I was already a foreman, was making pretty good money, was next in line to get a company truck, and we were happy. Like we built a we built a house. We built a house. Two children. Yep, two children. Beautiful herb garden. (laughs) Yeah, and no thought about going overseas until Dad came up and we started praying about it, and boom, and we've been there for almost seventeen years now. So Jesse was in heating and air. I had two kiddos, was enjoying clearing the property and trying to make that house a home and learning to quilt and, Mm. you know, attending your normal women's Bible studies and Sunday school teaching and that kind of thing. Um, But just stay-at-home mom at that point. Give me some things that have happened and lessons you've learned in your time as uh, missionaries. What are you guys doing and, and what are these lessons? We're with a group called Outreach International of Papua New Guinea. Outreach International was started by the same one of the same people that co-founded Pioneer Bible Translators, Al Hamilton. We tried to go with other organizations when we decided to go back to PNG, but we didn't. We don't fit the uh, in a box. And Al contacted us and said, "Look, if you can't get there with other organizations and you really feel called that this is what you're supposed to do, here's Outreach International. Go set it up in country and then start doing what God's called you to do." And that's exactly what we did. We've had other people with Outreach International PNG, but there have been times when we're the only people with Outreach International PNG. Our goal has always been train the local people to take over. There are times when you think that the people that you're trained are getting it, they're moving on, and then they'll just, like, it'll all come apart at the seams. And you just think to yourself, what happened? Like, you know, they were on such a great trajectory, and then all of a sudden it's it's gone. And you're starting at square one with somebody else. That's that's a low. Then it it sounds crazy, but wins seem bigger and losses seem harder. Hmm. There's nothing more frustrating 
I mean, for me, when Elijah was having appendicitis and there wasn't anywhere in country that could do the operation and we needed to get him to Australia and we had insurance that they had to make the contacts in country in order to set up the flight in order for them to pay for it. And it's been four or five hours through the middle of the night and he's sitting there, you know, writhing in pain. And you're just like, well, let me make a phone call. No, no, we're going through our channels, the, you know, whatever. And finally, you know, after five or six hours, you say, just let me make a phone call. I'll turn it over to you as soon as I get a hold of somebody. And in 30 minutes, I had people got in touch with them, and then they set up the rest of it. There's nothing harder from a parent's standpoint to watch your children suffer because of a choice that you made to go overseas. Mm -hmm. That's the most difficult for, I think. I can take, you know, if something happens to me, Something happens to Carrie, we made the choice to be there. But if something happens to your children because you made the choice to be there, having to make a choice when there was the cholera outbreak about not taking your kids back to the village because they'd be going to where their cholera was being transmitted, or the appendicitis, or growing up seeing domestic violence played out and seeing women cut with machetes and stuff like that, you know that affects them. I grew up under it. It's affected me. So when you see stuff like that and you realize that from a famous movie says childhood is something you spend the rest of your life getting over, that can be very true for a missionary kid. Hmm. That's challenging. I like in a lot of the situations that I find the hardest in PNG are the situations that can't be helped or that can only be limitedly helped. I have the greatest respect for people who can do foster care um, because I feel like my life is foster care a lot of times. Um, I can bring these children into my home. I can help them out. I can patch them up when they've been knocked down many, many times. I can help them get an education. But many times they go right back into the same home situations that deteriorate your efforts that you are pouring into them to love them and to show them Christ. So I feel like that happens over and over again. And even honestly with some of the adults, the same ministry that you try to give and the same teachings that you try to give, and yet that culture of violence sometimes will penetrate and sometimes it's a culture of animism that will penetrate and being pulled back into things that take their eyes off Christ. That's what we try to do is in our ministry with people, try to pour into them that foundational belief and knowledge and try to make sure that those who are working with us see that coming through in our lives. I think those are the hard the hard times is when being put to the test, we fall back down. We do it in our own lives. We see it in our coworkers as well. It's just, those are hard times. Mm. Culture is so powerful sometimes. But we get wonderful, wonderful highs too. Um, oh, yeah. We've gotten to see the Lord's provision in so many amazing ways. I remember one time sitting with a, a young girl who'd been bitten by a death adder. This was back in the radio days before our cell tower got there. And we had called up to the places that had planes in the area and just said, hey, can you send us a plane? We need this girl is having trouble. She can't hardly breathe. Can we get a plane in here to get her out? No, sorry, sorry. All the planes are out. All the planes are out. There's nothing we can do. If she can hang on for a few hours, I said, I don't think she's going to hang on for a few hours. And as we were signing off on the radio, I walk back up. To, to tell the, the family. To tell the family, there's no hope. I'm sorry, you you pray because this there's there's no planes. And you hear a plane fly overhead. Because the pilots overheard your conversation on the high frequency radio, and the missionary family that was going on holiday decided to save her life. <laughs> Landed. Got out of the plane, they flew her, came back, picked up the family, and continued on. You know, you get the word, there is no plane, and you go down to tell the family, there's nothing we can do. 
and the plane lands before you get there. And she walks back into the village three days later. Nope. After having her first plane ride, and her first car ride, and being in air conditioning for the first time, <laughs> and yeah. being under a fan for the first time. Yeah. yeah. All these firsts, at least that she remembered on the way back. On the way there, I don't think she remembered anything, <laughs> but um, still with us. And there's so many different amazing, especially medical things that we get to see. The Lord's intervention on a daily basis through the clinic, which has been amazing to see. I don't see a lot of those because I don't like blood. Carrie gets to see those. I stay and build the buildings and stay away from that kind of stuff. Through your entire journey, what is something that you've learned that you really want other people to know and latch on to? There's nothing that you're going to learn that you can't put to use in some way. I feel like a lot of the, I've, I've heard this from my kids several times, when am I ever going to use this? When am I ever going to use this? Um, I don't need to know algebra. I don't need to know biology. When am I ever going to use this? I don't plan to use this. There have been so many things I never planned to use. I studied to be an elementary teacher. I am now teaching grades 7 through 12. I am now teaching trigonometry that I never took in high school. There, You never know what God's going to have in store for you. You never know when that CPR class is going to come in handy. You never know when that biology lesson's going to come in handy. Things that you think are, are useless when handed over to the Lord can be used in amazing ways. If God presents you with the opportunity to learn something and you're given that opportunity, look at it as a, as a potential. You never know when that's going to come in handy. Latch on to that and hold on to that somewhere so that you can put it to service. However, he calls you to put it to service in the future. And be ready with those things, all those many things that you've been taught throughout your life. Hold on to them. You never know when you're going to need them. I'll echo her. I think God puts you in situations so that you can gain tools for your tool belt. There are certain things about what I do that I really enjoy doing. I like building. I always have. I like fixing engines and solving that kind of stuff. Always have. That's just been a bent of mine since... Since a kid, take something apart and figure out how it works and then put it back together and hopefully there aren't any nuts and bolts left over when you're done. The other thing, for me, that that's a great point Carrie brought up, said, but you have to be willing to fail. And you're going to fail. And sometimes you're going to epically fail. But we're not perfect. We've never been called to be perfect. So to think that you're going to go onto the mission field and make all the right decisions is never going to happen. You are going to make cultural blunders. You're going to make the wrong decision when at the time seems like the most sensible and right one to make. It's not about being perfect as a missionary and making the right decisions. It's dealing with people in grace and allowing yourself the opportunity to fail and then get back up. And I think people getting to see you fail and continuing anyway is a huge learning tool, especially in a cross-cultural situation because they say, you know, it's just like us. Mm -hmm. They don't do the right thing every time, but when they do, they don't stop. They continue to work. They continue to do, which is good because I've made a lot of mistakes in life and you learn from them and you get up and you go on. Okay, last question I have for you, and I'm going to give you a moment to think about it while I do a commercial. Pretend with me that for the next 60 seconds, everybody in the world is listening to the podcast. What are you going to say? While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojourner Podcast has been brought to you by the Alumni Association of Johnson University. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, 
you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So, Jesse and Carrie Pryor. Jesse, a 99 graduate. Carrie, an 04 graduate of Johnson University, Tennessee. What one-minute message would you give to the world? I think the world would be a much better place if we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. And please love your neighbor as yourself. Over in the PW building, there's a slogan on the wall, and I'm going to butcher it, I know, but it basically says, we believe as if everything count on is counting on faith, but we work as if it doesn't. I'm not saying that work solves everything. However, you can't stand with a shovel and pray for a hole and not be willing to dig yourself. Mm. I think a lot of Christians in the world today are looked down upon because our work ethic is not the same as our faith ethic. And in the secular world, especially when you go overseas, if you're not willing to put in the hard yards and put in the sweat equity, you won't be respected. And if you're not respected, the message you're bringing is not going to be heard. So you've got to be willing to roll your sleeves up and work hard. Like that's what really matters, even though we know that what really matters is having faith and believing in a Savior that has died for our sins and has risen from the dead. But we need to be willing to work, work hard, because that's what the outside world's going to see and respect. And the culture in Papua New Guinea, the highest compliment that you can give anyone is they're a hard worker. Hmm. And if you work hard, People will respect you, whether they believe what you believe or not. If you have the work ethic, at least they'll have a listening ear. Hmm. Well, Jesse and Carrie, thank you so much for spending time with me today, being guests on the So Journal podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having us. Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University, edited by Tyson Chastain, music by Loyal Love, podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts, dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>